Welcome to Brave. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy Ao, a VC founder and father. Join us for transcripts, analysis, and community at www.jeremyao.com. Hey, James. Welcome to the show. Hey, Jeremy. Glad to be on. I'm really excited to see you because we've known each other for so many years now in Singapore. And it's interesting to see where both of our founder journeys have taken us across the world, (laughs) across the US and Southeast Asia. And I'm really excited to share your thoughts and philosophy on what you're passionate about these days. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. So James, could you introduce yourself professionally to those who don't know you yet? All right. Short version is I'm a social entrepreneur, been at it for about 20 years now, and I focus primarily on behavior change and social change. Well, that's one way to say it. And you've also founded lots of companies along the way that really explored this from multiple dimensions as a founder and as an executive as well. So I got to ask you, you started out in University of Texas in Austin, you were doing multiple majors in psychology, sociology. Is that where your love for this started? Or did you start even earlier? A bit earlier, since we'll focus on entrepreneurship some back to the very beginning. My first little micro business, I was six years old. So I sold candy during recess, which pro tip to everyone listening, that's a great business model because kids are no impulse control. They were addicted to the candy and you can double the margins. And like you're at recess, so... It's just like this free-for-all. And I was the only guy like selling candy during recess, first and second grade. I did not realize at the time just what a target I was, being a white kid in a pretty diverse neighborhood in Houston, Texas, with a bag of money and bag of candy. Just for context, my house got robbed five times while we were living in that house. So yeah, the teachers eventually told me I should maybe rethink that business, but that was the first. And then I did like there's about six different micro businesses like that before I fully got into clubs. So I actually got started a lot with these speech and debate club and astronomy club back in high school. So I was like 15, 16, doing a few of those, founding them. And that was fun. It's addictive. It was more interesting than school. And I also got to build some space settlement design competitions. I got to compete internationally and nationally, locally to, as a kid, design space settlements. So that was really, really interesting. So that's how I got really hooked, I think, with that one. Eventually, I got to proper social enterprise at about 19. I built a CPR training program with the Red Cross. So I built the Red Cross Club, and then the CPR came with it. And I was finally actually making a little bit of money, which is surprising for this you know, poor kid from this neighborhood. I didn't really know what money was. I didn't make much, I should be completely honest. But from there, at that point, uh, I just kept on going and iterating up into what you would consider proper startups and small organizations, other clubs, and so on. But it runs a gamut from like meetup groups all the way up to startups with millions of dollars of funding or or revenue by now. Amazing. And obviously, there's this entrepreneurship angle that you talked about, but there's also this deep fascination with human potential that you exhibited with your choice of major university. Is that how you fell into it? Was it an accidental choice? Or were you more already back then thinking, I want to be a coach one day and think about human potential? Yeah, I eventually became a triple major, quadruple minor at the University of Texas at Austin. And I didn't finish my astronomy, which was going to be astronomy or astrophysics. I didn't finish that 
or my economics degree. So I just didn't do as much as I wanted, but I did have to graduate at some point. I got into that because I was obsessed with bettering myself and learning everything I could possibly learn about the world. And the majors were not as difficult as you might imagine. So philosophy is tough, but not that challenging, at least for me at that, at that level. Psychology was also tough, but not that hard. And sociology was relatively easy. And then the minors are in business and ethics and, and EMS and um, interdisciplinary leadership, things like that. But I looked at my engineering and hard sciences friends and I was envious because they were doing really hard stuff. And it, I could see them in the lab working all night and I respected that. But I ended up doing those majors because I really was deeply obsessed with what they could teach us about the nature of being human and upgrading ourselves from within and society. So that was just like the best thing I could have done. I did that against the advice of my dad. I did that against the advice of my astronomy RA, the advisor, who she eventually predicted I'd become a teacher. Somewhat right, but not quite. Every other sane person who was like, why are you doing so many majors? Just graduate, get out, get a job. So I liked to defy norms, but I also just wanted to do what I thought was important. And I kept on going with that. So I tried to build a university for today's Da Vinci's, today's polymaths, with a, a guy that I actually think, his name is Michael Barnatham. He is the most Da Vinci-like person I've ever met. He's a fantastic human being. So we tried to build a university like an MIT or a Stanford for these type of individuals. And we almost got it off the ground. Like we had a building that was donated. We had some students online, but the dream still lives. One day we'll try to build a home for these oddballs that don't fit into square or circle in their type of pedagogical institutions. So yeah, me doing that was just, I had to, and I thought it was a good investment uh, for, for life. Yeah. So how did that piece around human potential emerge over time for you? Because it feels like you were studying and you were showing that you were interested in this topic from pretty young. And I see that you were also at a lab doing social development as well. It's one thing to be exposed to it. It's another thing to start collaborating on it, but it's another thing to actually be interested in it. So when do you think you started getting interested in fostering or nurturing? We're going to go deep now. Hope you're ready for that, Jeremy. Yeah. So the reason I started that first business selling candy was because we were dirt poor. So we eventually filed bankruptcy. Mom and dad didn't have the best relationship. She stayed because we needed the money from his parents. He was legally blind. So my dad couldn't really work, which was a, a really difficult to internalize. So I started trying to work and started to try to contribute. And I had my first job at 14, and I just never stopped working. Work is more fun than fun. Uh, Noel Coward is a great quote I love. And the need was like just survival and uh, a deep understanding of injustice. Like this shouldn't happen to kids. I have, a, I have a twin sister. I have an older brother. And we all suffered. My mom suffered. My dad suffered. And when you are immersed in that for so deeply for many, many years, this is just the beginning of the story, but you start to internalize strong moral convictions that we ought to do something to change the world. So I've been doing it ever since and still working on it. I'll do it until the day I die. Although I hope to never die. I really, really am trying to back a lot of anti-aging researchers. And I back folks now. I'm not a VC, but I support in similar ways for innovators, social innovators trying to do substantial changes in the world. 
And I think with enough of us giving it a shot, we actually might have a much better future for all. So the human potential side comes from that. As a, I mean, a fun fact, just, just in the last hundred years, if you just think about the amount of progress we've made as a species, where our Olympic athletes a hundred years ago, if you just watch YouTube videos of how well they perform gymnastics, for example, versus today's, or if you look at the height differences or the IQ differences, if you look at the performance differences for someone like you that I know uses rescue time or uses different tools for augmenting your productivity, the difference is night and day in just the last 100 years. So I'm imagining the next 100, 1,000 years, 10,000 years, just how much we can evolve as a species. And that's exciting to me. So there's the painful side and then there's the optimistic side that, hey, if we do this right, we get to have a glorious future across many different planets, not just Earth. Wow, thanks for kind of opening up about that. I got to ask, if it's really about injustice, why your approach? Why is that your approach to solving that? Because there's so many ways to tackle injustice in the world. Some people are like, let's make a ton of cash and I'm going to be philanthropic about it. Other folks are like, I'm going to preserve and focus on this job, whatever it is, to take care of the people around me and my family that I'm going to raise. And you've taken a very dynamic approach, which is, I think, very unique, which is saying about, I want to think about uplifting human potential. You've done that across multiple ventures, multiple projects and initiatives, multiple approaches. So I'm just kind of curious why that is the path that tackles that injustice you spoke about. That's a good question. And we might need a few thousand hours to talk through it. We're not going to, I think. The very short answer is uh, I've been very involved in this movement called Effective Altruism, which is a social and philosophical movement around doing the most amount of good. And that came to me, like, I think some of the early ideas when I was a teenager, when I learned about cost-benefit analysis and cost-effectiveness. I wasn't really good at thinking through this and executing on my earlier ventures and projects. But as I've grown older over the decades now, I've been able to see more clearly about how to maximize good, at least I better ideas than when I was younger and dumber. But I don't know exactly what to do to maximize good for the world, to uplift everyone. I don't think you do. I don't think anyone really claims to know. There's a good book from a guy named Max Tegmark called Life 3.0. And he has 12 different utopias, different types of utopias that we might develop. He took some data on what people preferred. I like this kind of thinking. I like trying to think big and execute really directly on those sort of goals. But my approach if you look retrospectively over my entire career, it, it looks like a mess. There's so many different projects, multiple countries. I've lived in Singapore for four years. I've lived in uh, Indonesia and Bali for two years. I've lived in all parts of the U.S., including Silicon Valley, Seattle, D.C., and so on. And I've worked in something like, it depends on how you define an industry, but maybe 20 different industries and areas. And that's that polymathic streak. I was trying to become a polymath and like learn as much as I can broadly, and then go deep in a few areas. I'm no Da Vinci, but can try, can aspire. So I thought that was the approach back then. And it has led to where I am now, which is trying to solve human flourishing. That's what I'm working on, trying to optimize a human life. Like I'm looking at one individual at a time now. We can get into it if you want, but we do a massive intervention. It's like 2,000 hours long. It's for those who want to become the Elon Musks or Bill Gateses of the world. And we're attempting to define how to do that rigorously. 
And I think if we do that well with that population, then we could propagate that out to then millions of people who also want to obtain just a life well lived, just reduction of stress, having enough financial security to do what they want, being healthy and happy, good relationships, the kind of things that make an optimal life for them, which is going to be different for person to person. So working at this like top of the pyramid, going down, developing an app now to hopefully advance this for more and more people. I want to see more folks trying their their life goals, trying to hit them. And that would make me very happy. And I suspect with more of us doing it, then we have better odds of actually doing something substantially good for the world. Effective altruism. That's a phrase that's resonated with some folks and doesn't resonate with other folks. For those who don't know what that is, is it just utilitarianism as having a personal approach? Or how would you uh, articulate what uh, effective altruism is? That's a common misconception. You can be a deontologist and be an effective altruist, which is a believe in like the Ten Commandments and still believe one of the commandments is maximize good. It does lend itself really well to consequentialist utilitarian type of philosophies. However, it's not critical. If you wanted to simplify, it's more about rationality as the core and then impartiality, trying to help everyone, all sentient beings at all times, present and future. So it's a reframe of doing good. And I think it it takes a lot of time to understand it. So if you're curious, please research, uh, reach out to me, happy to talk through it. It's like you, you hear something for the first time and it feels off and then you never study it again. I think that's usually a mistake. For me, like I, I resonated immediately. Some of my friends and family did, some didn't. It's a matter of conversions. This also might be all wrong. This philosophical approach to doing change, doing good. And I love EAs in that they're pretty humble about it. No one I know is like says, okay, I've got the answer. That would typically get you, you know, a little bit of like incredulous responses. It's more of a, it's like a bunch of scientists trying to hash out what we might do to maximize good. But if that's not your cup of tea, then how do you maximize your good in your life? So what I do with my current company is I'm trying to figure out at the individual level, what's the best possible life for you? Because you might value career or stability or status or happiness or whatever it is for you in different weights. And so every person's got a very different profile for what the optimal life is. That makes a lot of sense because I think everybody wants to make some impact in the world, a positive one. And I resonate with that question quite a bit. What are some common myths or misconceptions about effective altruism from your perspective? There's a lot. <laughs> so how long do we have? The utilitarianism one is probably a big one. That it's mostly for a bunch of white analytical nerds from Silicon Valley. If you look at the data of the growth rates, it's about 10 years old now. It's a movement that was coined in 2011. And now it's spread out to substantial amounts of other countries and LGBTQ uh, subcommunities, parents. There's a, a whole set of folks that have resonated with it. So that's a big one. There was a common kind of trope that got established a few years ago called earning to give. This got really popular in the press because it was so sexy to talk about. One of our ideas was, you know, I used to call it the Bill Gates strategy. So first make a ton of money and then donate it all, which he's done a lot of good that way. It's kind of formulated into something we say earn to give. So go to Wall Street, earn a lot of money, and then give it away to philanthropy, 
which is actually a possible path for some people. It's not a bad one at all. It's not one that we and the movement typically emphasize very much. And if you look at the studies about what people believe in the community around this, it's very different from what the people outside the community believe. They like look at that and say, that's what we think. I'm like, no, we asked, we checked. It's not at all what most of us think. Just to be clear, you can earn to give or you can just do direct work. You can go and build a social purpose organization or you can work for one or you can do high impact research or you can do high impact type of advocacy and advise world governments. There's, yeah, I was just listening to a podcast today about some uh, effective altruists who built Our World in Data, which became the number one site for COVID information last year. That's a, a great example of someone doing like really high impact work. They basically just did it because it didn't seem like the governments of the world were actually going to do a good job at it. So they just picked up the mantle and took it. And I found that incredibly impressive and uh, admirable. Those are a few myths I can go on, but I, I encourage people to study it more before they judge too too harshly, too quickly. Yeah, some people think that if you're an EA, you tend to become like a robot. I'm like, no, uh, it's such a human community. There's so much care and concern for each other and the rest of the world. Like a lot of us care about even uh, non-humans, so animals, cage animals, or future humans and animals, the ones that aren't even born yet. And certainly ones that aren't in our same geographic region. So I think because I suffered a lot myself as a kid, I started internalizing the suffering of other beings everywhere. It doesn't matter if they were in my, in Houston, Texas, in my community, or in Texas, or in the United States, or even in my hemisphere, you know, it's the whole world and the whole universe. So I, I think that's one reason I ended up getting to, to Asia I think partly because I knew Asia was the future for social change, like more people be in Asia than anywhere else. And it is a very potent space for innovation, social innovation, especially. That's how we eventually met. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about that because it's interesting because you moved from the States and then you were working across Southeast Asia as a founder, especially in the impact space. Then you were back in SF and now you're back in Southeast Asia. So it's interesting because you're one of the few folks who are kind of fluent or native or agile across the Pacific Ocean. So I'm just kind of curious about, I guess, going back in time a little bit, at least when you first moved to Southeast Asia, you know, you started sharing a little bit about that being your motivation. Could you share more about what was it like to make that move, your first move? Yeah, that was a bit scary. Uh, it was 2009. And I was on a trip with my mentor around the world to, there's three countries. It was Russia and then Thailand, then Singapore. And we, essentially, I was there to help him do some consulting for a spice manufacturer in Thailand. It was mostly just a trip. It was, I didn't do much. He was doing all the work, but he asked me to tag along. Another friend of ours went. And so it was the first time I really got to see a lot of the world. And I remember arriving in Singapore and he spent one night before he headed off. And I had a four-day time to explore Singapore before I was going to go back to the U.S. And I just started, I fell in love. It was just a fantastic place. It was scary to be on your own, just a backpack and not much else. Uh, this is a month-long trip. So none of my family had done stuff like this. You know, No one really knew who, where I was. I didn't know anyone there. But uh, that four days turned into two weeks and I extended it. So Singapore Airlines was great and let me stay longer. I went and chatted with every social innovator and entrepreneur I could find. 
made some friends, got a, I gave myself a couple job offers <laughs> and I took one. I was back two months later working for a member of parliament with her social enterprise, trying to spread social innovation around Southeast Asia. So yeah, I loved Singapore. I was there four years, but eventually I needed to find a, a different culture to learn from and ended up finally going to Silicon Valley and exploring that. And now I'm currently in Bali, which is a different vibe than Singapore for sure. So Bali winds and like it has a little bit more nature. I'm, I'm kind of a fan of uh, waterfalls and beaches and so on and mountains. I lived on a mountain for like a month or so here, but I still, you know, I'm still con- contemplating where I end up. The whole world is beautiful and you can learn from everywhere. Yeah, I think that's the joy of the pre-pandemic world where I think it was just such a fluid place, right? And I think every geography, Silicon Valley, Singapore, and you know, Bali, three very different distinct worlds that could easily be passed as long as you're ambidextrous on that. What has allowed you to feel comfortable being mobile across geographies? Because the truth is there's a lot of folks who move from America to Southeast Asia and then it doesn't work out because it's not right fit or maybe the transplant doesn't take root or the culture shock is bad, or the homesickness is there. I'm just kind of curious, what do you think differentiates between those people who are like feel more comfortable integrating with Southeast Asia versus those who are going to be more mobile? For me, I'm just an oddball, and I like to be an outlier wherever I go. So that's helpful. But uh, I think there's a, there's a certain lure to Southeast Asia that many in the West really get but they have it as a mythical sort of, this is a fantastical place to be. And then you get there and you still have to go and make a life. You've let your friends and family behind. There's a 12 hour time zone difference. If you work internationally, you know that's tough. So a lot of folks end up wanting to be back closer to home. I know for me, like it would have been tough to get PR at the time. And I don't know if that's changed a bit with the passes and so on for Singapore, especially. And it's similar here in Indonesia, each country, like it takes a lot of investment to actually make the move. And I've lived in more than a dozen cities. I've gotten decent at it, but still like every time you move to a new place, right? It's an experiment to see if that's a good fit for you. It's like building a startup or dating or something. You don't really know ahead of time per se. You do all the research, all the thinking, and then you go and do it. You live there. And the insights I had just for Bali, for example, is it's a little bit more risk to life than I expected. So micromorts, you know, one in a million chance of dying. If you typically are riding a motorbike here, so your micromorts skyrocket. It's not the same in like a Singapore or other some other countries. But that's juxtaposed with all the amazing sides. I didn't realize how much nature was really here or the people are so kind. Like there are so many good and bad things and you have to test that out and I'm the kind of person that makes a massive spreadsheet, does a lot of research or have a team doing the research. And then we make predictions before we go because every move is like many hundreds of hours of time. I have met a lot of nomads that have been doing this for life for years. I'm not that kind of guy. Like I typically stay a place for a year or two or so. And I do hope to find a more permanent base at some point. So not sure what country it'll be. What advice do you have for people moving to Southeast Asia? So in their head, they're like, okay, Southeast Asia, there's this, like you said, myth, you know, the mythology, right? I guess the most classic one would be 
it's a bit dated. It would be eat, pray, love, you know. And then, of course, there's all the buddy comedies that happened in Southeast Asia after that, including I think Hangover Part Two. I think in this, that's what my brain is saying. So, what advice would you give for folks to prepare, or what they should they be thinking about as they figure out how to root themselves and explore the region? The meta question I think you're getting at, Jeremy, is how do you make good decisions and how do you make good strategic decisions? Again, that's a thousand-hour conversation. However, the, the potted, simple version, because we are bounded rational agents, we only have so much computational power, is at least sit down and write out the criteria that make a good choice for you and then try to weight those criteria you know, on a 1 to 10 scale or something and then do the math and see which of these places tend to pop up to the top. And look at more than just one or two. Like if you're obsessed with Bali which so many of my friends are like excited when I say Bali, I, I don't care. It's just a great place to live. I've never posted on Instagram. None of that really matters to me whatsoever. Yes, I've been to waterfalls. And yes, I've had amazing experiences. However, it's just hard for me to communicate that stuff. But some people come here just for the Instagram shot. And I think that's just crazy because life is more meaningful than that. But find out what's meaningful to you. Write down these things that is it quality of life, cost of living? Is it access to nature? Is it intellectual stimulation or so on? So I'm getting less of that here than I have in other places. And I get less of the workaholic vibe here. So I remember you being really intense. I love that about you and about other folks. That's why I like Silicon Valley. I had problems with Silicon Valley because it wasn't really focused as much on social impact. It's more on like, how do we click ads? And how do we like make people buy things? And some there's a lot of other good there. So I'm giving the hyperbolic sort of naive perspective there. So I should take that back. Like there's a lot of beauty there. There's a lot of beauty here and everywhere. But the trick is to write it out, make your spreadsheets, think hard on it. And if you can, you're doing short, small experiments to try to unveil what is actually true about that place. So can you go for a few days or a week? Can you like ask several friends who have been there, have them actually take uh, their video chat, their camera, and like show you their places and then ask them the hard questions. Like, what are the top 10 things you don't like about where you're going? It doesn't trend as much on social media, but that's the stuff that actually is important. I love what you said about experiments and using that to learn and test. For, let's just say, someone has made the decision to make the move and, you know, because they're taking up a job, right? You know, technology job or an impact job in Southeast Asia and so, so forth. What would you say is important for them to do in their first 90 days to have a good time, a successful time, a better chance of having a better experience over the long term? What would you recommend they do in the first 90 days? Well, you probably want to learn all the common scams in that place. I have a, a seven-page How to Bali guide. If you folks want it, they can just email me. I'll put it online eventually, but there's at least two pages worth of comment scams. I think I have a dozen listed. That's helpful because you will be targeted if you're not careful. I know I got homesick when I first got to Singapore and I was staying in this, this really nice hostel, actually, or very utilitarian. And I was there like trying to get my bearings the first couple of weeks. And I thought, why am I feeling so sad? And then I realized later, much later, it's just a normal kind of feeling. It was this transition, this culture shock, which Singapore, almost everyone speaks English, which is fantastic. So it wasn't as intense as a Ongmo, I guess. It wasn't uh, going, or a bule is the term here, going to a country that you don't speak the language at all. 
So if you're doing that kind of shift, that's an even bigger culture shock. So being prepared for that sort of transition and that, you know, whatever self-coping mechanisms you have, like dark chocolate or food or friends, movies, whatever does it for you. Keep in mind those kind of things are helpful and that you're human and that even positive stresses like going to a new place that you think would be fantastic, that's still stressful to your system and you got to give it some time to adjust. Nothing too profound here, but I encourage people to move. I encourage them to try a few cities at the very least, if not a few countries, if they can. And these might be aspirational goals, but they give you more context about how the world works, about what's important and meaningful in your life. And it's a ton of fun. Yeah, so true. I definitely felt homesick while I was working out of uh, Boston and New York, you know, scrambling to build a startup and definitely felt that multiple times. And thankfully, I was old enough to know it existed, but not old enough to really know how to self-regulate that. So anyway, so I got to ask you a question, of course, is that you've done a lot of crazy things along the way of, you know, build, change geographies, etc. Could you share with us a time when you were brave? Yeah, I actually have an emergency management background. I was a medic, I did some search and rescue, mad shelters during Katrina, Rita, Ike, a bunch of hurricanes. So it's not that abnormal for me to do this stuff, but as a civilian now, essentially, every time I see an emergency situation, I'll jump in. And I've done this at least 20 times with car crashes and fires and things like that. I think the most entertaining one, which in retrospect, was a little bit too dangerous. I was in my neighborhood in Elif in Houston, Texas, which is a little bit sketchy is one way to put it. And there were some gunshots and I was visiting my brother. And so we got in his car, went towards the gunshots. I was like, okay, well, maybe this one's hurt. And uh, we got there and there's this large gentleman. He's got to be, he's 100 kgs or so and bouncing around on one foot because he'd been shot in the foot. I don't know exactly where he was shot, but you know, I was a previous medic. I wanted to go and support. He's a neighbor. But he was screaming his lungs off at some guy in the distance who I didn't see, but that guy had a gun. So I was like, okay, maybe I shouldn't intervene, but no one was around. Anyway, so I tried my best to like pull him off the street and not to go confront the guy that shot him. He was unarmed. You know, he's a big guy, but like, it's just not a smart thing to do. And I don't think he was thinking very clearly. He was probably in shock. Uh, eventually, police and fire got there, but they didn't want to touch him because they can get sued. You know, as a civilian, it's a little different. We have um, some laws supporting us. But yeah, in retrospect, that was a little dumb. It was still, I just find it entertaining. But yeah, a couple of those things have happened. The word brave is hard because I think a lot of the, the folks that do these things that you would consider brave from the outside, from the inside, it's much more of an automatic response. I think the literature shows that pretty clearly. You're not thinking when you jump into the building. You just go and try to help the person you see. Some people think, and that's truly brave, but the majority of folks that do stuff like this that's admirable, I think they've just, the identity is someone who helps. That's an interesting dynamic because you're talking about the outside-in view, which is this action is brave, this behavior that we saw was brave, and then you're talking about the inside-out, which was the this person does not want run into the fire saying, I'm brave. It's more like, like you said, an automatic thing. At the same point of time, I also feel like there's a lot of self-disqualification because every time someone else says like, okay, that was very really brave of you, then they just say something like, oh, it's my duty, it's my responsibility, I just did it automatically, it wasn't brave. So I'm just wondering, why is it that so many people 
self-disqualify it from saying that what I did was brave or that was a brave behavior. I'm just kind of curious what you think about that. I think some cultures just teach modesty and humility, but some also admonish those who try to stand out and consider themselves better. So there's something called the tall poppy syndrome, where you cut down the tallest poppy if they stand out above the crowd. Those who are really successful get a huge amount of backlash. So if you're really rich and you did it with your own hard work and you didn't hurt anyone in the process, people still resent you. So there's a, a bit of that, I think that comes from being hairless apes. We're essentially hairless apes that are walking around with the with clothes and these fancy technologies, but we haven't gotten past our ancestral environment. So I think it's brave for anyone who tries to dedicate themselves to doing good. I really respect that. And I think it's brave for people who do these emergency situations. That's fantastic too. But like just handling a child, oh, that's, that's a lot of bravery right there. And you're a father. That's uh, how do you manage that and not go crazy? But if you didn't do it, then we wouldn't have any kids. We wouldn't have much of a future. So I guess it depends on how people want to define it. How would you recommend people to be beyond that? Because, you know, very much about effective altruism is very much saying like, I am going to be a tall poppy <laughs> to in this dimension, either by doing good or, like you say, earning to give, etc. So there's a big dynamic of the person needing to rise past the criticism or the fear of that criticism. So how would you think or what are some ways to think about that? Yeah, I deal with this with all my clients. All of them are super successful in their own rights now. they often multimillionaires um, or higher than that, doing ambitious projects that give them a lot of ridicule or a lot of praise. It really depends. If they fail, then they get ridiculed. If they win, then they, usually it's admiration. But even like an Elon Musk, no matter how much good you do, it has a huge amount of backlash by a certain subset of folks. So I am in the camp of let's aim big, do the best we can based off how we define it. So our own personal values, which I spend hundreds of hours through a protocol to help people figure out their values and get them clear in their mind and then clear in their action. And I'm looking at those who have aligned values and actions more so than outcomes. So yeah, you can do have the status and get the awards. Like That's great, but that's not really what I care about. I care about are your values and actions aligned? So do you have life congruence? That's what I call it. And what percentage of your total discretionary time and money and other resources do you allocate to your values? So that's great. That's how I would like to look at folks and how they're doing as opposed to who's like the, the biggest in the media or so on. But those in the media, they also suffer. I work with these folks and I, I feel their pain and how difficult it is for them to do their work without getting criticized every day and to know that they're putting so much on the line, their own reputations, their money, their hair, they, the stress of this sort of thing like wears you out. You can see Obama before and after. Just look at the face and look at the intensity of that. It's a, a great job to have to be president. But then the odds of dying if you're U.S. president are something like 9% of being assassinated, I should say. Like that's really high. Like there's some substantial amount. This is just looking at historical, so it doesn't necessarily project to the future. But those are things that people don't really want to look at. When the, the person in the ring who's fighting, I respect them enormously because I know how hard it is. 
and not enough people are aware of that challenge for them. And they don't necessarily care because, you know, they're rich or they're successful or whatever. So like they're not going to emphasize, empathize as much and understandable. But uh, I've worked with folks who are deeply depressed and highly effective and like out there. And there's that duality of self that people don't want to pay full attention to. So I try not to judge. There's no real point of it. Just encourage and support everyone on their path, no matter what it is. Wow. Thank you so much, James. That was a lot. And I thank you for sharing that as well. So uh, wrapping things up, I'd like to summarize the three big themes I heard from you. The first I really enjoyed was your personal journey. Thank you for opening up about your childhood, both the circumstances, but also your behaviors that let you contribute, but also formed who you are today. And it was nice to hear those anecdotes along the way of you know how you made the shift in terms of being in emergency services and helping other folks to you know exploring what you like. And I think those are really important for lots of folks about being self-aware about how they grow up. Second, actually, it was a fun uh, segue into affective altruism, which is, I'm sure got a lot of people suddenly Googling for deontology, utilitarianism, effective altruism, and all those terms we just threw out like uh, candy just now. And I thought it was a fun way to just have a quick summary about what it is and what it's not. And I thought it was just a good chat about that as well. And lastly, I think thank you so much for also sharing about the geography piece, which is about being self-aware about what the mythology and what your personal conceptions are versus the Excel sheet criteria process that you recommended folks to, but also being thoughtful about the self-awareness about how to be successful and root yourself in a place in Southeast Asia. And I thought that would be a great advice for lots of folks who are like I said, transiting or being nomadic or rooting themselves or building out the future in Southeast Asia. Mm. This is the future. And those who are listening, if you're in this region, I envy you. You've got a lot of growth potential. I see more and more of those in the, in the West and the US coming this way. Awesome. Thank you so much, James. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyow.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave. Stay brave.